People here are understandably very nervous, especially after the number of infected exploded over the weekend. Not only that, when we landed here in Wuhan earlier today, uh, we saw people, many of them wearing masks around the baggage carousel while we were waiting for our own bags. Taking a look at what's happening in the United States, U.S. officials want to make sure that they are raising the defenses, and that is what they are doing there, because right now, as of now, uh, there has not been a U.S. infection as of yet. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast that celebrates Ujima year-round. Mm. You're listening to this. This drops on the fifth day of Kwanzaa, marked by the guiding principle of Nia. We're recording this, Scott and I, on Monday. And this is the third day of Kwanzaa, and it's the guiding principle of Ujima. And we did our little Ujima thing um, before dinner. What do you think about the idea of collective work and responsibility? Do you think Triloquy is that? I do, but man, am I ever missing that collective work. Having worked solo for the last nine-ish months, oh, man, some collective work would be most welcome. That's actually a good point. Yeah, collective work through COVID. Wow. So um, happy Kwanzaa, everyone. Um, I'll speak a little bit to Kwanzaa a little later in this opus, but I wanted to make sure that um, I got to that. Um, on the downbeat, Scott, uh, we heard from a CBS News reporter, Rami Innocencio, talking about something called, uh, let me look at my notes here, coronavirus. I mean, mm. <laughs> isn't it funny to, in not even a year's time, the world has changed that much to where this idea of, oh, some people are wearing masks. There are 200 people who, who have uh, tested positive for this thing. And will it come to the United States? Fast forward to now. Isn't that nuts? People in the future are going to look back and say, God, can you imagine them walking around all the time without masks on? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really something else. So, we're, <laughs> so in this opus, this final opus of the year 2020, we're going to uh, speak to some of the things that uh, kind of stuck out this year with uh, COVID being one of them. Uh, just a few announcements here before we jump in. I actually have a few job announcements. So again, in the spirit of Ujima, collective work and responsibility, I'm helping y'all get to work. So here we go. Uh, Make Music NOLA out of New Orleans, an award-winning music education nonprofit organization, seeks a virtual violin teacher for their advanced violin class. This is an hourly gig um, of $40 to $55 an hour. Um, classes um, are, it looks like I'm looking here, looks like about uh, 10 to 20 hours a week. So a really great uh, virtual job that is guaranteed virtual through May. I'll have the link to that in the description of this opus. I also wanted to let you guys know about um, a position at Reed College. The music department at Reed College is inviting applications for a one-year position in musicology as visiting assistant professor for the 2021-2022 academic year. So if you are one of the musicology people, uh, be sure to go take a look at that. And finally, um, the American Composer 
Composers Forum is looking for an executive assistant. And I think uh, it's really cool that Vanessa has been on the podcast a couple times, yeah. um, including the overture to season two of Triloquy that we taped a little earlier this year. So if you want to meet Vanessa, if you want to learn what she about, if you want to see if she bowed about it and is she down, I think take a listen to that uh, and take a take a watch to that. The overture is on the website and uh, you can see if you would really be interested in working for the American Composers Forum uh, as her executive assistant. Uh, the job starts at 50K. So a nice again, a nice little job for uh, COVID times when it's hard to get work and all that sort of thing. So yeah. I'll have um, information on that and all of those positions that I just announced in the description of this opus. Uh, you wanted to give a shout out to someone before we got started too. Yeah, Rachel Barton Pine, you know about her Music by Black Composers project, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, they're approaching their 20th anniversary. So shout out to that. Their, their mission is to inspire black students to begin and continue instrumental training, make the music of black composers available to everyone, and to help change the face of classical music through greater diversity. And uh, for 20 years of that sort of work, congratulations and thank you. Shout out to Rachel Barton Pine. Today's guest, um, I invited back on the podcast, Miss Quanice Floyd, because we've been talking about AFTA and all of the things that uh, she's been involved with as far as keeping these institutions holding them accountable so i invited her back on the podcast um i think it's uh, i'm think i wanted to mention her well because she's the guest for this opus but but also when we talk about um you know allyship and being an ally mm -hmm. something that Quanice touched on in our conversation was that she doesn't believe in someone being an ally she believes in someone being an accomplice someone that <laughs> is going to use your power and your privilege and your access to get something for us rachel barton pine did that mm. it's it's i don't see rachel barton pine as um one of these white women trying to monopolize on something that's new or something that's or to capitalize people, on it. capital that's what i mean yeah capitalize yeah. on something that's going on right now as you've just announced i mean this is a, a couple decades in the making and how will we know so many of these uh tunes by these black composers if it wasn't for this uh for that recording one of the ones i'm thinking about right now is um the levy dance by clarence cameron white mm -hmm. i hadn't even mm -hmm. heard of him as a composer mm -hmm. you know much less you know that connection to black culture and, and xy Z, thanks to Rachel Barton Pine. So, yeah, shout out to her. She, you, you have to do that kind of work to get a free spot, a free, a free shout out. If you're not announcing a job, you know, <laughs> you really got to do the work. And I think Rachel Barton Pine did. So, huge shout out to her. Let's get in the uh, first movement. So, Scott, it's, as I mentioned, it's the final opus of Triloquy for 2020. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking back at this year, um, including in this first movement. We're not going to spend a lot of time checking a lot of accidentals here um, because we're going to look back and, and we each picked out an opus that we want to touch on. Um, but I did want to speak to some of the big news that I think impacts just about everyone, artists and everyone alike, um, the stimulus package mm. or this, this second stimulus. Are you feeling stimulated? I, I hope to be, <laughs> I hope that my cash app is stimulated very soon. <laughs> uh, so as we record this, it looks like on the news, again, this is Monday evening. It looks like on the news that Trump signed for us to get 2000 instead of 600. Is that what it, is that what it looks like? Well, the house voted to do that. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So they're, but kind he of, alleged that's what he wanted. Right. They're, but they're going to hold his feet to the fire now to see if he's actually going to up that to, to, to two grand. And also, uh, the house also, uh, 
overrode over there they have overridden his veto of the defense budget so it's hard not strike two it's it's hard not to be angry at least for me i'll speak for myself it's hard for me not to be frustrated with the women and men in congress because it seems like they're going to these daily meetings and having these debates and blah 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 when folks are waiting now it's one thing for me to want the stimulus check I'm not one of these parents with kids. I'm not one of these folks who was, well, I am someone who was fired from, or not laid off, but, you know, sure. but, but I'm, I'm working. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm not someone who's down and out in that way. So there, there are folks who need that. Right. And $2,000 is not a drop in the bucket nine, 10 months in for folks who lost their job and have to stay home and, and, and can't do anything. But at least they might eat that week, or at least that is a couple days where their shoulders are lowered a little bit and, and they're sitting around. This is not the politics podcast, but you, you can't help but to think about it. You know, I do think about it a lot. And what I think about is what do the people who voted on this in Congress think is going to happen with that money? Do they think that people are going to get it and go out and start spreading it around in retail? Because the people that I know that need it are going to start paying back their landlord. They're going to start paying off uh, an extension on a loan or something like that. Who's going to who's going to take this money and go and 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 just spread it all around? I, I say this every week, not to spend too long here, but <laughs> but not to spend too long here. If you think a few weeks back when I had Allison Loggins Hole and Edith Corbin from Ensemble Pie, this was back on uh, October, mid October opus, where they were talking about reparations and giving that concert. For, um, to, to raise awareness about reparations. Mm-hmm. What that would be, when we talk about reparations, we're talking about giving black folk the infrastructure on which to build. When we're talking about these stimulus packages, folks are so down underneath the ground, so far down in the hole. We aren't even talking about the infrastructure. We're talking about the survival, getting from up underwater. So mm-hmm. the work that I believe we need to do is so grand in comparison to a $2,000 check and folks and folks in power are just refusing to see that we have AOC up there, but that's like taking so much a, work a little drop of water and putting it into a hot skillet. It's, it's gone right away. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, get off on that, but anyway, so one of the things that uh, came up last week when folks started to talk about this stimulus was all of the other things that are buried within the bill. One of which being a streaming sort of piece of drama. I'm, I'm reading here from a website, uh, TechCrunch. The name of the article is the new stimulus bill makes illegal streaming a felony. All right. It says here, uh, we've already written several stories about the new pandemic stimulus. Um, there are, however, other provisions that could also have serious implications for the technology and media worlds. For one thing, the bill includes a proposal from Senator Tom Tillis that would make illegal streaming for profit a felony with penalties of up to 10 years of imprisonment. Now, uh, in the body of this article, um, it writes about how Tom Tillis alleges that this is only for the big companies that are really trying to monetize off of streaming and, and do it in an illegal and pirating way. But the, some of the conversations that I've seen surrounding uh, this, particularly when it comes to um, orchestral music, is that orchestras who have been streaming concerts because you can't have folks inside, mm-hmm. their music has been tagged or blocked by bots, by robots who hear Beethoven whatever and think it's this recording and flag it for illegal streaming um, 
go. What do you think? <laughs> it seems like it is the next uh, controlling step, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It looks like, again, according to Tom Tillis, he's really looking at the big people trying to pirate. But you can't forget, you, it, you know, again, I mentioned those robots if anyone is trying to do anything that one of these were look one of these copyright robot things or you know um, are, are, are looking to flag, you know that's it, and that's within the laws and the rules. I actually um, have planned a, a music lawyer to come on to have have an actual take on this because you know we're not lawyers or, or looking mm-hmm. into all that. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I think about the the legal the so-called legal side of it you know so what's right and doing everything else but i'm thinking about just the people side of it as well what if someone is trying to stream something and make a dollar in the middle of this panoramic this panoramic panorama not even a panorama what is this called a pandemic (laughs) what if so what so what that they're trying to do that? And I think that is more of where more of this frustration is coming from. We have a whole bill wrapped up into this stimulus thing that's protecting who? The people? No. no. It's protecting the big machine. And I think, that's, I think that's the rub. And it has to be an instance where they're trying to take tips or something like that. Is that it? Because you got a lot of people out there who use YouTube as sort of their their video sample reel you know if you want to if you want to hear my work here's my page yeah where they play all sorts of stuff again and it says uh, a bill that would make illegal streaming for profit okay just being sure but but streaming on youtube Mm -hmm. you know let's think about all of the folks who play video games on shout out to my friend misha who who has a, a stream on twitch what if that music is flagged do they have to play on mute you know what what do you what do you do what do you do well, I think you can go into the settings and actually turn the music off, can't you? But is that not a part effects. of the experience? Do you want to watch someone play medieval with the music you, off? You asked me how I, <laughs> how I would deal with it. And my first thing was, okay, if we have to turn it off, then you're going to lose all the explosions and, and sounds of a gun reloading and all that kind of stuff, aren't you? If yeah. you have to mute everything. Yeah. We, uh, I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying that's what I would do first. We are privileged in that... This podcast, starting in the institution that it started with, we learned certain rules and certain things as far as including music here. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give up the game here because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, but I, I just think that that's something that's uh, we're going to see unfold more and more. And if there's a vaccine or not, I don't know. But what can the orchestras do if they can't stream the music? It looks like they have to go completely with original composition or original compositions or at least contemporary new, right? yeah, compositions. Right. It looks like you just have to commission the um, the women and the people of color in your community to write something new so that your video isn't um, flagged. So. What day was it that I said the first orchestra that programs an all-black all season black. wins? I f- that was a while ago. So now let's alter that. The first orchestra that programs and all new music season wins that'll be something too but you know it's easy they to can go put in, it online but it's easy to go inequitable there it'll be it'll be uh, philip glass john cage and who else but <laughs> <laughs> steve reich speaking of uh contemporary white mid composers look at this uh 
I wanted to transition out of this little bit of the conversation with a piece of music by Adam Schoenberg. But I got here in my mind, we were talking before we cut on the mics, if we do get the Mm $2,000, what are you going to do with it? So what are you going to do with yours? Well, I actually did want to put a little bit of it out into the economy. And I know a guy who does custom cabinets Mm -hmm. and I need a new vanity in the bathroom. So I was thinking about paying him to build me a, a bathroom vanity. Look at you a day early. Well, uh, what is not, that? What is that tenant in Kwanzaa? That's, that's what I was going to say. A day early, Ujama. That's it. But see, is he black though? I don't know. Well, if well, if he's black, you're especially. I've in, seen in Ujama. Right. I've seen. <laughs> I've I've seen his work online, but I actually I actually haven't seen the artist. Well, if he is not black, just tell him now. Look, <laughs> I need you to be anti-racist while you're building this cabinet, okay? I need you to think about this. As a matter of fact, let me cut on this opus of Triloquy. Listen to this while you're, while you're putting on the cabinet. Yeah, I'm sure that's, <laughs> I'm sure that that's what we'll do. Anyway, so you're talking about the cabinet. So what that made me think about is my living space. As you know, if folks go on my Instagram, sometimes you can see I really prefer the red lighting. When I was working overnight, it helped me, you know, stay in the, in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, now I just like the aesthetic. We added red lights to the bathroom recently you know so i really like that um red is the name of a movement of a piece of music that i've been returning to um in these past months again i said his name is adam schoenberg uh the work is called finding rothko if you know who um the painter rothko is you can imagine this music sort of as a musical interpretation of what he does with the colors and the blocks. Anyway, Mm -hmm. the red movement speaks to not only the color red on a painting, but red feelings and red emotions. You know, life isn't always pretty Mm -hmm. and neither is music, but even through all of the ruckusness of it, this ruckusness of 2020 even, there comes a little bit of peace. And I think this excerpt from Finding Rothko really exhibits that well. Finding Rothko by Adam Schoenberg, a really uh, phenomenal. The, the fi- I had the pleasure of performing it. The final movement is really touching. But anyway, fingers crossed for the stimulus. I want my, I want my two bands. And if, and if it's got to be six stacks, give me that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> is that what goes around $1,000 when it's stacked up? Mine. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand. Okay. So as a part, so since again, so since this is the last opus of Triloquy for 2020, Scott and I um, thought that we might sort of underscore or rehash conversations or opuses from this year, uh, just in case you're new uh, to the show and want to go back or just in case you want to um, hash it out yourself. So what's your opus pick? For 2020, Scott. Opus 57. Talk to me. Do you remember that one? Uh, 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 not off the, not the, do you want, top to, my head. you want me to read a little bit of the, the caption that you wrote oh, for that God. opus? Oh, And I'm going to be critiquing my own writing. Here we go. Cancel culture has rocked the world of social media for a while now, <laughs> but a man named Paul Robeson was once canceled by the U.S. government in real life. Garrett chats with, is it Cesar? Cesar. Yes, yes. Shout out to Cesar. Cesar Savetta about the, that's that's fun to say. Cesar Savetta about the often overlooked legacy of Mr. Robeson and Scott tackles the cognitive dissonance of being an ally while maintaining a position of 
power. Mm, look at look at you making the show description. <laughs> okay, now you you make that voice and all that, but I want to make sure people understand. The government tried. Well, Caesar would say that he would not say this on the mic. I'll say that based on the reading that I've done um, and the research I've done, because, you know, me and Caesar were working on a book Mm -hmm. um, and Paul Robeson was a huge part of it. You know, the government tried to get him out of here. And there are a lot of people who will say that. Caesar? So, no, Paul Robeson. (laughs) (laughs) So when we talk about cancel culture, it's Mm -hmm. one thing. To be like, oh, well, no one wants to follow you on Twitter or anything. But it's another thing for a body, for a governmental body to try to cancel you. And Paul Robeson, you know, is one example. We can talk about the FBI's involvement uh, in the killing of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. To this day, the Nation of Islam talks about how the FBI played an integral role in the killing of Malcolm X. So it's can't cancel culture. I mean, it's it's the extremes can can really be something. But. You remember I asked you at one point if there was ever a moment when you were nervous about it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to elaborate a little bit on that? Well, uh, <laughs> I think that it's funny. So you chose Opus 57. When I looked back, I chose Opus 56 because that's where we talked about Louis Farrakhan. There were a lot of people who were upset about it. And there were, you know, what was interesting, Scott, is that there were a lot of people, an equal amount of people who were like, yes, thank you. We we had no idea. We were really celebrating it. And the unfortunate thing, and I, you know, I had a conversation with Joshua uh, Wallerstein. Shout out to him. Mm. Wow, that was this year. A lot of stuff <laughs> happened this year. I got copied on a couple emails that you received as well. There was some pointed. <laughs> so what was your, so, so the connection there was, I thought they were going to cancel me. Mm. <laughs> I thought they were done with Triloquy. Thank you for being here right now. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, what was your perspective on uh, the Honorable Louis Farrakhan then versus now? That was what the gentleman who I was copying in on the email was writing about uh, the use of honorable. Right. Boy, he was right. hot over that. Right. Now, here's the thing. It, it did not rattle me at all because I don't have knowledge of all of Farrakhan's history. Yeah. And, and uh, it's problematic, I'll I, be the first right. to say. I just I just know that whenever his name comes up, a lot of people in the room have strong negative reactions. Well, but something for me to see was, aside from the emails and, and the um, the comment box things, which are all valid, I, I, I affirm all perspectives when it comes when it comes to this. On my face personal Facebook thread. It got a little hot. And the line was very clearly drawn along racial lines. And it was discouraging, but it also showed me the impact that uh, Louis Farrakhan has had on black communities, mm-hmm. especially in this case, a black, excuse me, a black arts community, you know, talking about the uh, his collaboration um, with, 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 with the black orchestra that um, he was with. I lost a friend, uh, a dear friend over that opus. Wow. Like it it was a lot. And looking back, Scott, I have to say, I don't regret putting it out there because folks who know who Louis Farrakhan is for the good or for the bad 
Um, I'm sure they did not know that he was a violinist. And I think it's interesting to highlight know. that intersection. And we spoke with Amanda Cook, that opus. And yeah, I shout remember, out to her. I, remember, I care if you listen. I remember very clearly we had the conversation of that was a no-win opus because if if people weren't upset with the fact that you were featuring Farrakhan, mm-hmm. it's that his technique was terrible. So it was, you were going to get it one way or the other. I think that might have been the first and only double guest opus because we had Caroline Jones as well, mm. who actually played the concert right, with Farrakhan right, right. and was the personnel manager and, you know, dealt with all of the fruits of Islam and, and has a picture with Farrakhan himself. That's the uh, photo I chose for that opus. So, man, if I again, if, if I could go back, I, I, I would do it. I, I would still put it out. There's some sound quality things that I would have would have done different. Sure. Um, but maybe I would have approached the conversation with a little bit more sensitivity because as a black person who grew up not villainizing uh, Louis Farrakhan, mm. it was sort of new to me, even considering the homophobic stuff that he said and the uh, mm. and the and the damaging patriarchal things that he upholds. You know, I just did not have the perspective of some of my Jewish friends and. I guess I wish that I had understood that beforehand a little bit better so that I could engage the conversation a little more. Mm-hmm. Like him or hate him, Louis Farrakhan is very consequential and very impactful on black communities. And for this black leader to also be someone who has affirmed so-called classical music and black musicians who do it, I think that is very important to note. I think it's also important to note that he has said um, and done some things that are very harmful to many, many communities. Look at both of us concerned about cancel culture from our (laughs) our own different perspectives. Look look, look at us trying to get clean for 2021. I don't know about that. (laughs) There might be a couple things to just line up and, you know, sort of dust off. But I don't think I, I wouldn't change anything I did or said over the last year, would you? Moving on, uh, no, uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to address that, but we'll 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 get into some of that in uh, in the triloquy. All right. Um, moving All right. on into the, so that's checking the accidentals. I'm gonna put a natural by the stimulus and the streaming because I'm hoping to get a check and it feels natural to just wait at this point. I don't know. That's what I got. <laughs> yeah. What is time anyway? With the what 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 overarching accidental do you want to give Opus Fifty Seven? Opus 57, natural. culture opus. Natural. A good natural. Yeah. With Opus 56, uh, the one about Louis Farrakhan, I'm going to give it a sharp because I learned a lot. It was my opportunity to be more engaged. I felt very engaged by um, the black folk who listen. Mm. I felt very challenged in a good way um, by the folks who called issues. So I, I appreciate that. And I appreciated revisiting Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E minor. Everyone knows it, you know, who's who's in classical music. But I just think there is something about it that's so magical. I'm not going to share uh, Louis Farrakhan's rendition because I don't need it from y'all this week. <laughs> so this is uh, Aunt <laughs> Sophie Mutter with the, uh, I think it's the Gavon House Orchestra is the, yeah, that's what you is the recording yep. we chose because at the beginning, I don't even want you to fade this in. I want people to hear at the beginning that 
first note, they really figured out the orchestra, how to make it sound like they had been playing it all along. And the audience is the one who came in. The orchestra didn't come in. The audience, you know, and, and that just comes with the whole orchestra breathing and every, again, collective work and responsibility, just that spirit of Ujima, everyone coming in together. And here we are, and here we go with this incredible piece of music. Here's a little bit of the opening, as much as we're legally uh, allowed to stream anyway, <laughs> of, nice. of, of Middleton's Violin Concerto in E minor. So you like the way the violin comes in on the Mendelssohn, and yet you don't with the Sibelius? Am I remembering correctly? No. The Sibelius is an incredible piece of the violin, the Sibelius violin concerto. Wait, 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 yeah. wait. It was somebody else that was telling me that. Never mind. Yeah, and tell them that they're wrong. Uh, the 100%. <laughs> yeah, we agree on that. Look at us caping for the white men composers at the end of the year. Mm. <laughs> uh, and speaking of which, no. So in, <laughs> in this second movement, so for today, um, this, this New Year's opus, I thought that uh, Scott and I would rehash some things uh, musically, tell you what uh, has been moving us the most um, this year, and also what we just listened to the most based on um, the numbers. But uh, getting the second movement started here um, is a little mini category uh, that we're calling Be Sure to Listen. So this is kind of our honorable mention portion, something that we want to make sure uh, we mention before we leave the year of 2020. How about you get us going? You remember a few opuses ago I brought in music by Blind Tom Wiggins mm -hmm. the slave who was uh, blind autistic and a music savant yeah spent 12 hours a day every day being paraded around and made millions of dollars for the people who owned him yeah okay so uh, I was watching 60 Minutes last night because I'm 50 <laughs> and um, they did a story on uh, a man named Matthew Whitaker, 19 years old, uh, blind from birth, and they were trying to get him to start interacting and come out of his shell, and music was the only thing that did it. And they put a small piano, a kid's piano, in front of him, and a lot of kids would go up and bang on it, mm -hmm. but he was using both hands, you know? So even from a young age, he was, like, really in tune in tune to uh, music. Well, you know how Blind Tom was treated as a novelty or a sideshow act or something like that. Um, they actually, uh, Matthew's parents actually made sure that he had the best instruction and was given all the tools that he needed to be successful in something that he actually had the talent for. So uh, the woman that taught him how to read music in Braille, mm. number one, imagine trying to visualize music that way, right? Mentalize music that way. Mm. So um, he goes to hear his new teacher play, and they did the Dvorak Piano Quintet. The next day for their first class, she walks in, and he's sitting there playing the piano part from the quintet, having heard it once. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of uh, talent that he has. Um, he also 
is a drummer, composer, arranger, and now band leader. His most recent release uh, came out in 2019, and it has the track that I want you to go and check out called Bernie's Tune, which is actually by Jerry Mulligan. But the way that he handles it is such a nice, familiar sound to it. So this is a little bit of Bernie's Tune. His whole album is something for me that as I was listening to it, uh, I, I just felt like I was in a much larger city with New Year close and there was sort of an electricity in the air. Basically, Matthew's release sort of painted the aesthetic and it, and it got me feeling like I was in some sort of hip locale waiting for people you know because I was doing a little cooking as I listened and 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 I kind of pretended like people were on their way over or whatever and this is an amazing album to have on in uh in the background uh his 2017 debut you might also want to check out is called out of the box I'm sitting here moved getting glassy-eyed thinking about the dedication someone has to have to make sure to get that braille, those braille notes in. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even, I don't know how to read braille um, music notes or how to teach that. But when we talk about equity, that's what we're talking about. And a few opuses back uh, again with the vibrating bodysuits, mm-hmm. if you remember, we were talking mm-hmm. about that. Um, you know, I mentioned how all of us in the arts, whatever little corner of it we're in, need to start thinking more about the issue of ableism and being more accessible in that way. Wow. I I, mean, I, just, I, need, I got some work to do. I need to learn my Braille notes. Man, I, I have a hard time doing it with my eyes. <laughs> so, but imagine the way his brain works. Yeah. You know, and they showed him in an MRI and they played a little bit of just like a boring lecture and there was just no brain activity. They played a little bit of his favorite band, Snarky Puppy, and it lit up with every, his brain lit up with every single color. Just imagining the way that his brain works and how he can play something back after one listen, amazing improviser mm. as a jazz as a jazz pianist. Just just check out Matthew Whitaker. Yeah, well, uh, my uh, honorable mention, my be sure to listen. You know, you went back to Blind Tom Wiggins. I wanted to go back and shout out um, again. I forget the opus number, but Christine Gangelhoff mm-hmm. from here in Minnesota, but teaches down. Um, at the University of the Bahamas, mm-hmm. um, she uh, brought to me, you know, put on my radar a, a piece of music by a Bahamian composer, a black a Bahamian composer down there. Um, his name is Je- uh, Christian Justilian. And again, it's, it was on the opus. It's on the Triloquy Tracks playlist. But um, this uh, suite that talks about the Bahamas, a little bit of the history, and offering that general aesthetic with a piano, a euphonium, and a flute, you know, Christine uh, Gangahoff playing the flute. And when I think about that music, you know, I go back to it so much because I think that's really what represents what I'm trying to see, what we're trying to see in so-called classical music. It has the ingredients, okay? So for the people who are afraid of a beat machine or a drum set or whatever, it doesn't have any of that. We're just 
talking about three um, so-called classical instruments here. Mm -hmm. But the aesthetic really centers something that is not Western European. It's something that really is, you know, Bahamian in spirit in every way. I mean, that first movement, I think, is the perfect morning music. You you hear the flute, you know, the, the way Christine uh, plays that flute. It's, you know, it's like that fun bird outside. <laughs> Let's say if you're if you're waking up over in Norway, you know, you hear, um, you know, the birds singing that very old classical tune. Well, you got the cool birds, you know, down in the Bahamas, just the colorful birds that are, you know, anyway. That that's the mind that that that's the path my mind goes down when I when I wake up and do my morning rituals and you know I listen to this music and it's like I go down there to the Bahamas on those cold Minnesota mornings when it's I think it's a three degrees out there right now listening to that music just reminds me of when I was on the beach down in the Bahamas and music music can do that and it can be fun and it can be relevant so here's a little bit of that I want to make sure that y'all hear that again. just think about it Scott as cultural as that is and as much as we don't mind really celebrating something that sounds like that mm -hmm. you know that classic music that classical music why can't we incorporate a voice and a beat machine if another culture says this is what's foundational to their society and their perspective on on music and all that sort of thing why can't we? Or? Why 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 can't we? We always like to draw these lines about what can be classical. So again, with Sea Force, the ensemble Seahorse, uh, Seahorse, Sea <laughs> Force, it's flute, piano, euphonium. euphonium. What if instead of piano, it was the Ableton Push? Okay. Mm. And all mm -hmm. of the sounds that that can make, all of the beats, all of the different aesthetics it can create. I think. We have to consider more, and listening to that music that's really rooted in Bahamian culture helps give me perspective on how we can continue to affirm classical music as something that is much broader than we've been taught. I think the closer we get to not having all of the old identifiers as to what classical music is, as soon as we can change people's minds that it doesn't have to be orchestral or chamber or whatever from the 1800s will be a lot closer yeah. until we shed the old definition and what we expect of it that's not going to happen until we shed that i hope we can shed that um in less than 10 to 15 years but we'll see we'll see you <laughs> um so a, a couple just quick uh, quick hits now. So uh, for this next one, Scott, I thought it would be fun to just let the people know based on the uh, data that's collected on our phones through the uh, DSPs we use to listen to music, what is our most listened to track just by the number. So for this podcast, I like to say, you know, keep it trill. Megan the Stallion said something slightly different. I'd rather keep it real with you. Real hot girl shit. 
It ain't always about what you like, sometimes it's about what's right. I'd rather be a B-I-T-C-H Cause that's what you gon' call me when I'm trippin' anyway You know you can't control me, baby You need a real one in your life You bitches ain't gon' give it to you, right? I'd rather be your So I think that is my most played tune because I played it every day in the car on my way to work when I was going to NPR. Basically, what making the stallion, what what I get, what what I get from that. I understand what she's saying about women empowerment and reframing, taking ownership of that word that I want, the, the B word that I will not say. Mm. Um, what 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 I took from that was I have to continue on and push forward and do what I do. And if this colleague or if this person wants to call me difficult or they want to call me insert code word for I'm not being respectable, so be it. So that's just what I got from that Megan the Stallion song. Mm. That's why I played it every day on my way to work, sometimes on my way home from work. Um, even now in the mornings, I listen to it just as, you know, kind of a pep rally tune when you're trying to get yourself together for that first Zoom call. At least that's how I do it. Yeah. So shout out to Megan the Stallion. We talked about her a lot this year, didn't we? We did. Well, you did, and I <laughs> and I tried to I tried to keep up. <laughs> okay, what did you what did you press play on the most in 2020? You remember how over the moon I was on that one Joe Parra talks to you episode with the lighthouse mm-hmm. and uh, the the power outage and that I forget what the title of it is. Aaron Esposito has uh, a track I, I forget what the whole album is, but. Each track is titled just whatever number it is. Mm-hmm. Track nine is used in that Joe Para episode, and I played the snot out of that thing. It's only like a minute nine seconds, but that minute and nine seconds brings up so much different emotion mm-hmm. inside. It makes me feel different things depending on where I'm at at that particular moment, but if you remember that episode at the beginning, Joe is wrestling with the feeling of not being necessary. Okay, his girlfriend is a prepper. She doesn't need him in a power outage. She, he, he, he should probably just stay where he's at and be safe. And, and his Nana doesn't need him because she's got a fully charged iPad, so she's good to go. But at the end of it, he finds that there are things that he can offer. There are things that he contribute. And I think that after the year that we have had, I think that all of us have had at least one thing, one realization throughout this past year that we can do that makes us invaluable. It's so interesting to me. I know I, I say it, things are interesting a lot. It's so interesting to me, Scott, that you were so drawn to that because that's a conversation that we engage off the mic oftentimes on when it when it comes to Triloquy, mm-hmm. when it comes to this show. We'll again we'll we'll get into it uh, in a little bit of the fourth movement. But I love that you love that show. I love that we were able to. Um, introduce it to you and, absolutely and you're the fan now more more than us you know shout out to shout out to joe Pera. i love that show but you really dove in there there is steve martin level comedy happening there just amazing comedy and i'll say it again joe as a producer is really thinking on multiple different levels and that the choice of that song and the way he used it chef's kiss 
So beyond what you clicked play on the most, when you think about a piece of music just in general in your peripheral that sort of is 2020 for you, when you think back to 2020, the tune, the music that is the bed for that, what is it for you? You remember that Kronos Quartet track, My President Sang Amazing oh, yeah. Grace? Yeah. I, I'm, I must be feeling sappy here at the end of the, or, you know, yeah. nostalgic here at the end of the year or something, because again, that track is so hopeful. And um, the Kronos Quartet teamed up with uh, vocalist Mecklet on that, and just oh, right, yeah. such an amazing example of power through restraint. You know, she did not go over the top once, and yet it just, boom, grabs you and holds on. And that song that kind of kept me going through throughout the last year, for sure. But no words could say what must be said For all the living and the dead The president sang amazing grace. The president sang amazing grace. That was definitely one that got me in the feels, and every time I go back to it, I'm right back in the feels. Well, you know, I think that the fact that the Kronos Quartet when you see their name, mm-hmm. you can expect something interesting, something different, something not the norm. I think that they have uh, made themselves out to be that is very, very impressive. I saw people talking about uh, The President Sings Amazing Grace apart from Triloquy and apart from your talking about it. So it's one of those tracks that really got to the people. It was, mm. it was, it was a, a really incredible one. When I was down in Knoxville on the radio, there was an, there's an album called Floodplains that features the Kronos Quartet that I wore out. And mm. it was some so-called world music, but just sounds that are so different and yet so beautiful and so engaging. So I, I like that the Kronos Quartet has been able to team up with folks like Mechlid and, and create music that so many people can love. I think the Kronos Quartet is an example, again, of what certain arts institutions could be. In the same way that you see the name Kronos Quartet and think, oh, they're going to do something that's cool, that's this or that. You, we, we could have the same thing with insert institution here, insert radio station here, insert mm. conservatory here. Yeah, um, I wonder who's going to jump out and do it. Hmm, I guess we'll see. Well, uh, my for, for the final piece of music we're going to throw at you for this second movement, my in the feels. So when I think about the year 2020, as I always think about race, um, it's there. But to a heightened degree, when you think about Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain, George Floyd, all these people, but also the positive that um, I've been able to do. So uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of out of 2020 was getting to host and produce Gateways Radio for the Gateways Music Festival. Um, I was also given a really great uh, uh, feature in uh, on WQXR. Shout out to everyone over there, me and the Triloquy podcast. And I 
I actually didn't remember giving them that quote, but um, I told them that a piece of music that was really impactful uh, for me this year was James Cockerham's arrangement of Lift Every Voice. And again, mm-hmm. this is one that I closed and opened uh, my Gateways radio with. I've gone back and listened to this video a kajillion times. There's a virtual excuse me, a virtual orchestra version that I'm involved with, you know, that, that, that I played. Um, it takes the Negro national anthem, lift every voice, presents it in its traditional form, mixes in some blues and jazz, mixes in some of the indigenous sounds to mm. uh, shout out uh, those people. It's an, it's a really incredible arrangement and beyond just that arrangement. Um, I've been listening to on, uh, on the internet, the version that my friend Anthony Parther uh, led um, with the uh, Southeast symphony over in California, Anthony Parther, Scott, um, by the way, conducted, the score to the Mandalorian. So you're hearing his work oh, nice. every time you watch that show. I'm, I'm uh, working to get him on the podcast. Um, so I listened to his rendition um, and I listened to so many other renditions. You know, there's a woodwind quintet version that I put in my Kwanzaa radio special for the radio stations this year. I think I did last year as well mm-hmm. uh, by Imani wins. So the more I just become familiar uh, with that tune, you know, just being able to sing the tune shout out to Beyonce who included it <laughs> in um there's your triloquy drinking game yep. uh, who included it in home uh, in, in the homecoming. Um, I am ready to say goodbye to the star spangled banner. It's a problematic tune. It's got verses in there that specifically speaking to slavery. Let's just switch it on over to the Negro national anthem, lift every voice because I have. So everyone else needs to, a lot of black people have. And I remember when we talked about this before your other suggestion there was in the mood by Glenn Miller. So you got a choice. I've gone this whole podcast so far without cussing, and you're trying me. I have a choice between <laughs> Glenn, what is Glenn Miller, Glenn Miller, and the Negro National Anthem. Okay, Scott. <laughs> These were both your suggestions. I know. I'm, I'm joking with you, but think about it. How how powerful and the Louisville Orchestra, you know, started uh, their or is planning to start their next season instead of the Star Spangled Banner with Lift Every Voice. Think about watching the Olympic Games and let's say a black person wins in something historic like fencing. I think a black person still it can't be that. It can't be that. <laughs> But think about watching. It's got to be something. And epic. it's think about watching, and it's lift every voice. Yeah. I, that that's powerful. Yeah. That is that is so powerful. No, so you're anyway, not wrong. Here's here's a um uh, and before uh, I let you hear a little bit of it, I wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, Kwani's Floyd. If you go way back, I think she was the guest on Opus 15 of Triloquy. Uh, Kwani's Floyd is the leader of the Arts Administrators of Color Network. Kwani's Floyd is also the author um, of an op-ed that, again, I'll put in the description of this opus um, that was calling out the Americans for the Arts for not really doing what they said they were going to do when it comes to racial equity in mm-hmm. the arts. So um, because, you know, we talked about it so much over these past few weeks, especially um, as it has to do with stuff going on in New York, you know, where yeah. Streets is done, uh, uh, I thought that I would have her on. She was so gracious to um, spend the time with me. So we talk um, about um, holding folks accountable. We talk a little bit uh, about Kwanzaa, actually, and uh, some of the things that she wants to um, see moving forward. So here's an excerpt from James Cockerham's arrangement of Lift Every Voice. And here's my conversation with Kwanis Floyd.
I was formerly a public school music teacher for almost 10 years. And so, um, you know, one of the things I really, really wanted to do was bring my students into the classroom. I wanted them to see themselves as artists and musicians and composers. And, and so um, I teach in the DC area primarily. Um, I taught in Baltimore County, uh, in Montgomery County, DC public schools. And so one of the main like pieces of black culture there is go-go music. And so um, during the like, 1960s and 70s, Gogo ended up being developed because um, when James Brown would go on tour, he would have these little intermission uh, sets where he would go on. And whenever he came to DC, they would have um, Chuck Brown and um, Chuck Brown's band members, you know, play as a part of his backup. And so during those intermission pieces, you know, they would just kind of jam out, just improvise and do all of this and make it real funky. And then after a while, they started bringing in like the bongos and like they started bringing in these poly polyrhythmic like rhythms. And it was just really, really fascinating. And over time, it just like developed into a brand new genre. And so Go-Go over the years, over the past like 40 years has kind of uh, evolved just like hip hop has evolved. Um, and so now you have like different types of Go-Go where you'll see like the kids beating their feet and they have like the bounce Go-Go where it's just like a real hard like, uh, 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 uh. Type of beat, mm -hmm. and so um, you know, I tried to incorporate that into the into my my school curriculum, even though it wasn't a part of my school curriculum because it's mostly European curriculum. I roll, um, and so my students loved it. Like they were just like having fun with it. We created go go's. They would come up with their own songs. They were working groups together to come up with beats. Like they thought they was like the next junkyard band. And if y'all don't know who junkyard band is, look them up. And so, <laughs> um, you know. I, I, it was one, I, I would never forget this for like the rest of my life because then that, this is the kind of the pivot point in my life as an educator where I was like, I need to do more for my students. And, um, you know, we were doing a go-go. I had created a whole unit on go-go for my middle school students. And uh, um, we were doing it one time and the principal came in and she just looked mad. And I was like, what is, why is she upset? She was like, stop playing that noise. And I was like, what? Like, did she really just say that to these kids? They were like excited. They were mm -hmm. writing. I mean, of course, you know, when you come in a music class, right, I always tell people it's organized chaos, right? Like you always hear a whole bunch of things going on. The kids know what they're doing. I know what the kids are doing. They focus, they doing what they got to do. But when somebody from the outside comes looking in, they're like, what the hell is this? But if you go up and ask one of the kids what they're doing, they're going to tell you. Um, and so she came in and was just like, I guess the noise was too much for her or the sound. I don't want to call it noise. The sound was too much for her. And um she was just came in and she was like, stop this noise right now. What is this noise? And the kids looked like uh, Miss Floyd. Like they were looking at me. And I was like, what are you talking about? They were like, get your boss. They, I was Floyd. like, they're composing music. This is the, they don't need to play this noise. They don't, they, what time, why aren't they singing? And I was like, oh my God. I just, I just could, at that point, I just, I didn't even have the words because if I had the words, I probably would have blew up on that teacher and got fired right then and there. <laughs> um, I mean, on that principle. Um, so I was just kind of like internalized that and it was like, yo, I got to do better for our kids somehow, some way. It has to be outside the classroom because I, I can only do what the principal allows me to do within my classroom. But if once I'm out of the classroom, then I'll have more power to look at the system as a whole to make some changes. And so um, that's when I started beginning like my transition out of the classroom. So now that the classroom isn't the classroom as it were because of covid and everything else do you think that this has left children more or less vulnerable to cultural incompetencies like those it i think it depends on the teacher right like uh mm -hmm. 
if you go some places, like I know really good, because I'm still in the, the DC, Maryland area. So I'm right now I'm an advocate for, um, well, I'm considered a lobbyist for arts education and public school system. But, you know, I know some really good ass teachers who are doing like amazing remote teaching as mm -hmm. music educators, as visual art educators. And then in other places, it's like you, there's people who just gave up. So it just, it just depends where you are, right? It just, uh, you, it depends on that teacher. It depends on what they're willing to, you know, and teachers also vary too, right? Like some teachers are gonna, you know, bust their ass to make sure that the kids get what they're supposed to get. And then other teachers, they're like, well, I'm retiring two, three years anyway. So blah, 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 blah. You know, there's just yeah. different attitudes you got to deal with. Yeah. So I just really think it depends on the area. It depends on the teacher. Um, but I know Baltimore City, they have some phenomenal teachers. Prince George's County has some phenomenal teachers. Um, so around the whole Maryland area, I think overall, they're doing really, really good. But, you know, you'll still find those little pockets of where, you, where, you know, there's some... Um, incompetence happening. Um, and I'm not saying that the teachers themselves are incompetent, but I think because of the times and the way things have changed, it's hard for some folks to keep up, right? Like, right. you know, if you've been teaching 40, 50 years in a classroom and then all of a sudden you have to go remote, like you're scrambling, you're not really understanding like what is, how you're gonna adapt to this new positioning, so. Yeah, that agility is something that, you know, we see a lack of in a lot of these institutions, some of which have, mm -hmm. you know, failed and, and are dark right now. Others uh, you have called out. We'll get to that here <laughs> in a second. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but before we jumped into that, the other thing that I wanted to uh, refresh uh, folks on um, is the fact that you exposed me to the idea of giving land acknowledgments. So when I give mm -hmm. public speeches and things uh, from my home anyway, from Zoom, I always tell folks that I'm calling in from the land of the Sioux, specifically the Wapakute of the Eastern Dakota, you know, and I'm very mm -hmm. proud and happy to be able to understand that. Uh, thanks, thanks to you. Um, I wonder, just in a in a nutshell, if you could um, speak to the importance of land acknowledgments from your perspective and, and why you go out of your way to you know to maintain that equitable practice in your work. Yeah, um, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, the, and the history matters, right? Like, and not just history, but the history, the truth. Mm -hmm. It matters. Like we have to honor truth. We have to honor um, the things that have happened here. And when we talk about land acknowledgments, we're not just talking about um, we're bringing highlight, especially to folks whose land this belonged to before colonialization, imperialism, like imperialism, colonialism, and all of that. But then also thinking about the history, right? Like imagine doing a land acknowledgement in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Mm -hmm. Like. It, not only are you honoring the indigenous people, but you're also talking about the history of the, the massacre, right? Like right. The, these people who had created uh, uh, almost a, a Mecca, a black Mecca in Tulsa, right? And so like, you have to acknowledge that. And without, because without all of that history, you wouldn't be where you are in this place mm -hmm. right now. Exactly. Um, and so I just really, really think that people have to be like, and it's so difficult for us arts, just arts institutions in general, to even acknowledge the history of their institution. But they're quick to acknowledging lands, but it's like, but it's the same practice. You have to acknowledge what has happened in this place for you to be where you are at this moment right now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, right now I'm in the land of the Lenape, I'm in New York City. Um, I live in DC, which is the land of the Nakachitink, the Piscataway, and the Pamunkey. And so like, I always think about those um, ancestors who were there and just even thinking about like DC and New York, you know, New York City had um, Seneca Village, which was a black, 
you know, community. And then they built Central Park over it, mm-hmm. right? Like they just got rid of them. Um, DC, you know, the historical value of that was that they were chocolate city. There's gentrification happening. You have to acknowledge all of that. All of that, all of that history that's there. Um, yeah, I just think that's powerful for people to be able to do that. But then, you know, that, that, uh, that uh, I guess is a contradictory piece is that they acknowledge that and like a lot of arts institutions acknowledge where they are, but they don't acknowledge their place in all of that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, That's something so, that yeah. I've been thinking about and talking about a lot when it comes to the New York institutions. Me and Scott have constantly been saying streets is done in New York with the arts mm. because the Met is dark, the, the New York Phil is dark, you know, so mm-hmm. many of, of these other institutions. How does that make you feel as a New Yorker? I'm sure growing up, Carnegie Hall, for example, was just such an institution, but to see it toppled mm-hmm. over by COVID, it, it, it must strike a chord with you in some way. Or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Everybody always talks about those institutions, but growing up as a kid, those weren't like, you know, we'd take school trips there, mm-hmm. but you didn't really understand the value of those institutions as a kid. There was no and I, I played in, um Yeah, and I played in All City. I played in, the, we had Burrowide Orchestra and we had All City Orchestra here, and I played in both. And so I played at Lincoln Center and I played at Carnegie Hall and my grandmother saw me on stage at Carnegie Hall. Like she loved it. Like for her, it was a big deal. And then for me, I was just like, oh, I'm just on this stage, right? Like, I don't know. I, I just, maybe because I was a little bit, uh, maybe as you grow up, you, you're just oblivious to the things. As a kid, you're just seeing big buildings and you're like so used to the big buildings that you're not thinking about the powers of those institutions. You're just thinking, oh, my grandmother wants to see me at Carnegie Hall and now I'm here and now I'm doing this for her, right? I'm not even thinking about this. She's not thinking about grandma. Right. Um, right. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm neither here nor there on that, but I, I just, I feel like there's a lot more that those institutions probably could do to reach out to the little kids who were like me growing up in the city. And I think the city's a little bit different now, but because of all the gentrification that's happening, um, but you know, ask my, ask my classmates, like I went to a performing arts high school and like, we just wanted to make it, right? We just wanted yeah. to get by every day. We wasn't really worried about Carnegie Hall. I don't think, I think the only place, the only uh, Broadway show I saw as a kid was Phantom of the Opera because we had to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> that's interesting because what you're speaking to uh you know people not really seeing the power in those buildings i think you can speak to that conversely as well the folks in those buildings not understanding the power of the folks that are walking along those sidewalks and passing by right. every day with no real reason to uh to, to engage did you did you hear about the the robert smith uh drama at carnegie hall and um hiding mm-hmm. a lot of money um long story <laughs> short and, and we we talked about this on the show last week but uh the the chair um for their board was caught like trying to hide 200 million dollars from the government but the board you know what was like oh well carnegie hall was like well he's fine we, we see no reason he's he's rectified <gasps> it you know when we see all of these large dollar amounts thrown around in the arts 200 million here you know i think um they were they talked about a 182 million tax refund for the organization what is being done with all of this money right right i wow. mean and that was one of the points you know that you brought up in 
um, the article that, you know, your, your, your op-ed that started so much uh, energy, I'll say, in the arts administration community, uh, specifically talking about um, after all of the money they have, their endowments, the promises they've made, and the lack mm-hmm. of uh, accountability um, therein. So, you know, first and foremost, why AFTA? There are a lot of organizations out here mm-hmm. that have given so much uh, so, so-called woke statements that they haven't lived up to. Why is AFTA um, an important organization to to seek that accountability from? So um, I guess it could have been anyone, right? But I happen to be on AFTA's Arts Education Network, which is a national network. And I was elected by my peers in the AFTA network to be on this network, uh, to be on this council. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I feel like I had a responsibility, right? Like in, um, uh, I'm being elected by people who trust me. Like, you, you know, when you think about lectures, you have to, <laughs> you think about the people, right? A lot yeah. of these institutions don't think about the people. I think about the people all the time. That's what I, I think about people. Um, people is center to a lot of the work that I do. And, um, and helping people is like part of one of my, it's like my morals, right? Like I wanna make sure I'm helping others. Um, and so because I, in 2018, I was the um, Emerging Arts Leader um, awardee from AFTA. I already had some connections there um, and some input there. And then being elected earlier this year onto this council, I was like, I just felt like I had an obligation to the people who are part of the network who elected me to be on the, uh, on the council. And so, um, you know, I went to the orientation in January, we went to Sacramento, you know, we had a great time, it was an amazing group of people who were on the council with me, had conversations about a lot of things. Um, but it seemed like there was a lot of confusion as to like, what exactly, um, you know, we're supposed to, how, how much our words matter, right? Mm-hmm. If we're in an advisory role that's supposed to support the work of AFTA and what they do in arts education, you know, what, what do they listen, what do they listen to what we have to say? What do they like hear? versus like, what do they actually take in and consider and put into execution? Um, and so, you know, we had amazing conversation with the council members and, you know, we just really was wanting to support after any way that we could. We're working on the ground. A lot of us work in the communities, right? We're on the ground, helping kids, helping families, helping elders, right? Like, and we want to just be able to bring that back to after and have them create a more holistic view of what arts education looks like. Because if you think about it in general, arts education to me is the stepchild of education and it's the stepchild of the arts, hmm. right? And so people often talk about arts education last, but arts education is the one that brings in the most money because we're talking about future, right? We're yeah. talking about kids. We're talking about um, investment in education. We're talking about all of that. And so when we talk about... Um, uh, you know, the work that we're doing, we're trying to figure out like, hey, how can we better serve arts education so that it's no longer a stepchild of both the arts and both education? Mm-hmm. And so we try to have these conversations over and over. And, you know, there's never like a final answer on anything. You know, we try to come up with different uh, strategies to help, you know, support education policies, but then also including the arts, but then also supporting arts, you know, you have all these policies going through the NEA with um, COVID and, you know, and also including education, right? And so, you know, we just wanted to make sure that we were supporting the work that AFTA did as best as we could based on the knowledge and experience of those who we know are most affected by these policies. 
you're really hitting on something when you talk about the responsibility of being in a role like that. The word right. inclusion, the phrase diversity, inclusion, equity is on everybody's lips. You know, I'm thinking about that inclusion mm -hmm. part because it's more than just being in the room. It's taking responsibility for your seat at that table or, or whatever right. you want to you want to call it. Oh, in, in my reading, in my um, keeping up with everything that you're doing, um, the name Andrew Lee has come up a lot. I wanted to make sure that I uh, gave him a shout out for all the hey, incredible Andrew, things yep, happening in the uh, <laughs> Washington, D.C. area. Uh, from your perspective, you know, the work that you're doing, the work that Andrew Lee is doing, you know, there's so many folks um, on the ground when it comes to arts administration. What does this mean for the bigger picture, as I as I like to think of it, there's there's someone you know listening right now who's never met an arts administrator, maybe doesn't even have kids. Why is this work so pivotal to the bigger picture of demolishing anti-racism and 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 the other things that are holding us back? Right, and I think what people don't notice about the arts is that culture, right? Arts and culture go hand in hand, um, and so when you think about let me just take a step back. One thing that I truly dislike around conversations around arts education is when people say, we need to bring the arts to this community or we need to bring the arts to that community. When there's already arts and culture in that community mm. that people aren't utilizing and you're discounting that arts and culture in that community because you wanna bring whatever your European-centric arts to that community. Um, and so like by, I feel like one, we miss, we miss the mark on that all the time by saying that there's no arts in that community or no culture in that community. But then two, that is the, by understanding that there is arts and culture in that community, that is the way that you build communication and connections to people. And so like, to me, like when you're thinking about anti-racism, you're understanding that there's other arts and cultures, right? Like you're understanding that you can communicate to people or through people through their arts and their culture. Um, and I just feel like we miss the mark on that all the time. Like I hear it even, I'm a DC commissioner for the arts and humanities and I, we hear it all the time. They're like, well, we need to bring the arts to, to Ward 8 or we need to bring the arts to Ward 7. There is arts there. Stop hmm. that. There's arts there already. You just haven't taken the time to go into the community and talk to the folks and see what they do. There's so many small grassroots organizations that are doing works of multi-million dollar institutions on a 10, 15, $20,000 budget. And nobody says anything. And it's like, everybody always like, well, what can we learn from these big institutions? No, what can we learn from these smaller institutions that have actually made an impact in our communities? Um, and I'm not sure this is answering the question, but I just feel like there's ways that we need to better understand one another's culture. And I feel like the arts is that key piece to that. That yeah. key, you know, you know, everybody says, oh, you know, everybody knows the language of music or everybody knows blah, 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 blah. right? And so, but nobody puts that into place. Like nobody actually brings that along. Like exactly when you think about like in the concept of my principle, right? Music is the language. And so when you're coming in the classroom, you see students and you, you, you're thinking, you're calling this noise, but students are speaking to us right now. Mm -hmm. They're talking to us through this language of go-go music or through this language of jazz music or through this language of house music, right? They're talking to us. Um, and I just think we miss the mark on that all the time as arts institutions, so... 
So what is the role or from your perspective, what is going to be the role of these larger institutions, considering the fact that there are so many smaller ones that are doing the good work that are enriching communities, enriching individuals? Do we need the large institutions to survive? So, well, that's a good question. Do we need that's a ooh, that's a loaded question. Do we need it? Because <laughs> immediately, I would just the responsibility for them is to really build relationships into the communities. Like they need to see what's happening. And honestly, people need to give up some of those resources, right? Yeah, people keep playing money. I see a lot of grit, huh? Money specifically. About money specifically. People keep playing and. You know, I've seen a lot of big institutions who co like, I don't want to say the word coerce, but it is a way of coercing smaller institutions into their grant grants. Or they try to manipulate smaller institutions and write them into their grants. We've seen that. You know, as a grant panelist and a commissioner of an arts and humanities, you know, I, I I've seen that. Where someone will literally say, I've seen my name in a grant application and I did not I did not say I could be in there. So people they 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 still, they're still, they're stealing, <laughs> right? Like, you're taking from people who are doing really good work. Yeah, um, yeah. And so some of those, those larger institutions need to step aside and really like think about what type of impact that they're creating. Honestly, some of them might not even really care what type of impact that's creating. They just want to bring in the dollars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of institutions really need to think critically about the impact that they're creating and how they're actually um, bringing in these smaller institutions or learning from these smaller institutions, not bringing in, but learning from these smaller institutions and making the true uh, connection to communities that they haven't been connected to. Yeah, I've been trying to be more, especially going into the new year, be more goal oriented, really have something specific to shoot for right. when it comes to the small projects and the and the bigger mm -hmm. things. I think what my biggest goal is in my work is for all instrumental sounds, all sounds that are classic and foundational to a culture to be affirmed as classical music. So the example mm -hmm. that I often give is that the timpani and the djembe are both classical instruments that should yep. have equal footing you know in the space that that's sort of the things um that i think about what do you think about in your work what do you what what is the reality you want to see for the little black girl who's 10 years old going to her music class when when you know it's all said and done it will never be done but let but let's just use that phrase anyway when it's all said and done what do you hope for that little black girl or that little black boy going to his music classroom so I'm going to bring up a, a video I saw probably in the last week. And it was Cardi B. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. And she was doing um, a dance class in the in the Bronx. No, she was not in the Bronx. She was at the Debbie Allen Dance Academy. So that was in LA. And she went in there and she was so open-minded about it. But we had these, they had these little black boys and girls who were, do, who were dancing with Debbie Allen, um, doing ballet, doing modern, doing jazz, doing African, doing like doing it all. Um, and so when I saw that, I was looking at the faces of the children and they were, they like lit up, right? To see Cardi B, someone who sings, you know, WAP, someone yep. who sings like Bodak Yellow in the same classroom as them doing a dance class. Like they, they like to them, it was just like, oh my God, I can't believe she's doing this. This makes me feel so cool, right? Like yeah. I'm doing something that Cardi B is doing. But then on the other side of that, right, it was affirmation. But on the other side of that, Cardi B, 
She grew up in the Bronx. She immediately said when she walked in, I grew up in the Bronx. I don't know nothing about dance class. Right? And she came <laughs> in and she, this little Bronx girl, saw that she could do it. And Debbie Allen was cheering her on, letting her know that she could do it. Um, and so she didn't think, like, probably before that, she didn't think this little, you know, Dominican Trinidadian girl from the Bronx would ever have an opportunity to dance class, uh, to dance, um, uh, you know, ballet or to dance, you know, African dance or with Debbie Allen. Like, it was just both, both of those coins to me were really fascinating. Um, and so, like you said, that affirmation on both ends, like students being affirmed and, and being able to, you know, bring their skills to the forefront and understanding that the value of, and the power that they have. And then also thinking about like the adult side of that, right? Like, I think that often gets passed down. I, you know, I used to see it as a music teacher where, you know, parents would be like, oh, I wasn't good at music. So I don't think my child's gonna be good at music. And so that child develops that same thing. Or, you know, we are too poor to be in, you know, ballet classes. Mm. And then that child develops like, oh, I never did dance class because I couldn't afford to, right? Like, and that child develops that blockade thinking that it's, you know, the whole elitism in the arts is a whole different, a whole different conversation. But like to think that Cardi B was like, we, I lived in the Bronx, I couldn't afford this. And now I am doing this and yeah. I am able to do it. To me, that's so powerful. Um, I was just overwhelmed watching that because I just saw like the reactions from both the kids and from Cardi that they both knew that this is something that affirms who they are as little black kids, wherever they are, wherever they grew up. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of Cardi and her uh, significant other offset, they had that song clout, you know, talk about how folks mm. do anything for clout. Mm. There's a lot of that still on the scene, even though it's fading away on the art scene, unfortunately, folks making these statements and then it fades out. And a lot of it just seemed like they wanted to be, you know, in the room or, or, or the or the right person at the table. But that advocacy isn't actually absolute. You know, there are parameters. There are things that they feel like they can't do as institutions because they're thinking about donors or they're thinking about that mm -hmm. endowment or whatever. It's the same for individuals. I think this year we've seen a lot of black folks, unfortunately, other folks of color who, how can I say, the heat is a little too hot for them in the kitchen. They're mm -hmm. worried about what job is going to fire them or they're worried about what connections that they won't have if they really speak up and stand up for anti-blackness. What are your words to those folks? I can understand that people are afraid to lose their jobs. You know, I am someone who lost my job in 2020 for, you know, standing mm -hmm. up um, for, for anti-racism. What are your words to those folks afraid, af afraid to stand up to their boss, afraid to make that social media post? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit different. <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't know. I just follow my gut with a lot of these things. Um, you know, one of the people I think about is like uh, Michael Bobbitt, um, who currently is at the New Rep Theater, but I think will begin as the executive director of the Mass Cultural Council maybe next week, if I'm not mistaken. And so when Michael Bobbitt came into New Rep, probably, I don't even think it's been a full year yet, but when he came into New Rep, he just came out the gate with anti-racism. Like New Rep is gonna focus on anti-racism and he was making these bold public statements that basically was like, we stand for black lives. Um, and they came up with a whole anti-racism plan for the New Rep Theater. 
And there was a post that I saw on Facebook. I don't know if he shared it or someone else shared it. And it was, a, you know, it was one of those like standing up for Black Lives posts. And then somebody that was, I guess, a, a membership person or donor had written in the comments was like, basically saying, you know, you, it's not about Black lives, about all lives, blah, 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 blah. And you know I, what the people at New Rep said? Okay, well, if you don't agree, you don't have to come to our venue. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, that's fine. We don't need you. And I think that's, we need to, uh, institution-wise, we need to start doing that. But it's really difficult, like, being an individual doing that. And so I'm someone who really, like, I'm really embedded with, like, spirituality, my ancestors. Like, I I feel like my my grandmother and my mom, like, all of my ancestors, like, they I feel like they drive me to do certain things. Um, and so if I say something, I see something, I'm going to call it out regardless of how everybody else feels. Um, but everybody can't do that because everybody's not afforded that privilege to, you know, because right. of capitalism, everybody's not afforded to that. You know, somebody might say something and the next thing they know, they're losing their check and they're like, yeah. Hey. Yeah. Um, but I think that's where accomplices come in, right? Like, who can we start tapping? We have all of these white people in the field. Who can we start tapping to be those supports to speak up when we cannot speak up? Because they, they will attack us. Because we're the, you know, we're the brown face or the brown body in the room. But if, you know, Jane Doe says something, they'll take that into consideration. So who can we strategically partner with to help speak up for us when we know that it could potentially like risk our livelihoods? And I think that's where accomplishment comes in, right? Accomplishment, you have to risk all of that. You have to be ready for that risk to speak up when you see that other people are being put down or other people are being silenced. And I just want to underscore the use of one of your words, the very intentional use of the word accomplice. You didn't say mm -hmm. ally. You said mm -hmm. accomplice. Accomplishment. Um, yeah. speak, speak, give us a little bit of clarity on that just b before we wrap up here. Why is accomplice the word you use as opposed to ally? Yeah, um, actually, so um, I went through Art Equity with Carmen Morgan, who is phenomenal. And that entire team is phenomenal. So if, have, if you haven't heard of Art Equity, please go look it up. Um, but she was the one who brought that to my attention. Because when you think about an accomplice, first of all, white people get scared when you hear the word accomplice. They think they're going to jail. <laughs> they, think, <laughs> they think they're about to get shot, killed. They think that you're robbing a bank together. Like, they, all of that comes up. It's right. good. It should come up. Right. It should come up. That's exactly what should come up when you feel. You should be scared. Um, but when you think of ally, like it's just the person kind of to your side. And there's a lot of um, uh, uh, resources that talk about like instead of using the word ally, um, you know, to use accomplice because accomplice is someone who's ride or die for you, right? Like it's someone who understands the value of your life and is willing to risk the value of their life for your life, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, even in 2020, I've seen a lot of uh, posts talking about ally fatigue. What the fuck is that? Ally fatigue? <laughs> oh, I haven't seen like, that. <laughs> I didn't even talk. So what is that? Right. What is that? <laughs> like, if you're tired, then imagine what black and brown exactly. people are feeling. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, you can't say you're an ally and you're fatigued because that doesn't exist. Um, basically, you're passive. Yeah. And if you're an accomplice, you're active. You're not passive. You're not letting things slip by. If somebody says something problematic, you call that out. 
If somebody does something hard, problematic, you call that out. Are you not letting you not and you're not sending emails after the fact? I've been in a lot of situations where I have spoken up, and after it's happened, I got emails, texts, phone calls. I'm so sorry that happened to you. You were so right. That's ally. That's passive. We Accom- need somebody to be accomplices cussing them out right then and there. Right. Right. I say something, they'd be like, got your back, sis. Bow. And right. <laughs> I love it. So we need more accomplices out there. I wanted to end on uh, on a little Kwanzaa note since uh, that's that's the season we're in. This is coming out on the fifth day of Kwanzaa, the day marked by yes. the guiding principle of Nia or purpose. But mm-hmm. there's so you know, when I when I read the op-ed that you put out and and take a look at your work, I see the spirit of so many of those guiding principles. I'm going to read a little bit of the of the end of your op-ed here. You wrote, as a field, we've waited far too long for these institutions to get on board with the movement towards racial equity. So now the call is for us, Black, Indigenous, and people of color artists, leaders, and the organizations that serve us. We must come together, build agency, support one another, shift the current systems that have alienated members of our community since their inception, and invest in ourselves when these organizations will not. So when I read that, I'm thinking of the guiding principle of Kujichagulia, you know, that self-determination. I'm thinking about Ujama, those collective mm-hmm. economics. What's the what's the uh, Kwanzaa message that you want to send to all of the artists, all the arts administrators, and all of the uh, potential accomplices, uh, as you say, uh, leaving 2020 and getting into 2021? Yeah, I mean, it's, thank you for bringing that up. First off, I want to shout out my cousins because I have two cousins, one named Imani, one named Nia. So you oh. know Kwanzaa has been embedded in my family <laughs> since the beginning. <laughs> this is not new. Uh, right, it's not new. Uh, and so, like, this is my Kwanzaa message. Thank you for bringing this up because often people have, for the past couple of weeks since that, that op-ed has come out, people have been like, well, thank you so much. And aren't you happy that, you know, this is happening? And blah, blah, blah. The whole purpose of that op-ed was not for after to start scrambling and doing what they they get called out to do, right? Like that, I'm, I didn't care about that. That purpose of that op-ed was for BIPOC folks and to say, look at this shit that's happening. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> and let's start coming together and supporting our own. So when people were like, oh my God, after doing an investigation, this is this one and that one's going on leave and blah, 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 I didn't care about that. And people were sending me messages and I was like, that wasn't the purpose of what I said. The purpose of what I said was for us. So you missed that whole person, pur- purpose, white person, right? That wasn't, that wasn't your, uh, that wasn't your business. It, w- it literally said for BIPOC folks to invest in one another. And we have to do that. In order for us to build collective movement, in order for us to shift the field, we have to invest in ourselves. Stop giving these white people our energy. You know how many how many uh, how many articles I've been saying this. You know the first black, the first Latinx, the first indigenous, mm-hmm. and I'm like, we're in 2020. Like we're still talking about first. Oh, we're still talking about you know if you win an award. You know it's, awards are great, but whose standards are you winning the award by? Right? Like why are we so hyped up to win someone else's award about their their exclusive standards that we can make our own opportunity for resources and for change and investment and for for a whole new field right like we if we focus on our own we can build up the arts administration world within ourselves without having to deal with what they do or 
going by their standards. Since we ended with a little bit of Kwanzaa there, I thought I would bring in a work by composer Sean O'Loughlin called Imani. You know, Scott, in the same way that Kwanis um, is, you know, a, an arts educator and administrator trying to put equity into the classroom, teaching these kids about this music. That's what I felt like my band director was trying to do for us. Mm. You know, she was a white woman, but Memphis is mostly black everything, including what the band was. So when it came to holiday time, she really made sure that she put this composition in front of us and I, I almost get misty thinking about it because to this day I still remember it that was you know 20 years ago and I'm still remembering that this woman named Paula Turner made sure that the band for the holidays played a band tune that spoke to Kwanzaa we we need that everywhere I think that's what Kwanisis is really trying to do create that equity in every little corner the other thing that I wanted to get your feedback on Scott Kwanis you know as you heard did not speak to being an ally she spoke to being an, an accomplice, accomplice. Mm -hmm. so what does that mean to you from just for, for, for that being thrown at you just out of nowhere what do you perceive as the difference between for you being an ally versus being an accomplice it's interesting you bring that up because to me ally seems passive mm. ally seems like something you can choose when you are going to mm -hmm. be an ally if you are an accomplice you're sitting there in the jail cell with them, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Sorry. Sorry, that tickled me. What am I wrong? <laughs> no, if you've got an accomplice, yeah, they're, they're in it. Right. They're in it. I guess I guess you're right. But see, you're supposed to use your privilege as a as a white man to tell the white man with the keys, look. Give me the keys. You can trust me. And then you break all of us out. You see? You see? Now that's an accomplice. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. So, right. you know, breaking Triloquy, the podcast that is breaking the bars. Mm. Ooh, and there's even a music, a music thing there. You see what I did? Nice. Anyway, shout it. out to Kwanis Floyd. Um, Thanks, Kwanis. Thank, th th thank you so much. So um, to get us into the Triloquy, once again, I wanted to make sure I'm giving some room to Kwanzaa. Again, today is the third day of Kwanzaa when we're recording this, guided by the principle of uh, Ujima. Um, and, you know, we, we did our Kwanzaa breakdown last year. We won't do that this year. But one thing I did want to do, uh, once again, is thank all of the people and all the radio stations all the folks who um, played a role in the sounds of Kwanzaa, making it to the radio. Um, I think I spoke to it uh, last week. One of the tunes that I was so happy to include in the um, in the special was a work by uh, Afro-Cuban composer named Mongo Santa Maria, an arrangement uh, by Valerie Coleman called Afro Blue. It really just speaks to the diaspora of being black, how the guiding principles of Kwanzaa certainly apply to Afro-Americans, but can reverse throughout the diaspora and even out to non-black people as we talk about being an accomplice as we talk about collective work and responsibility i just love it i love this holiday i love this time of year shout out to everyone celebrating kwanzaa this year i hope you have a really wonderful kwanzaa here's a little bit of afro blue by mongo Santa maria and valerie coleman to get us into the final triloquy of 2020 
So, Scott, I think it goes without saying that for me and for the world of public radio, the year 2020 was very interesting. Mm -hmm. I want to just one more time and maybe as a means of leaving it behind, just affirm that my termination from Minnesota Public Radio was very rocky. There are still times in my life when I wake up in the morning and not wonder if I did something wrong or wonder if I would do something different, but just wonder if I have a place in the world. Minnesota Public Radio is not the first place that I have been fired from for doing what I thought was pro-black, for fighting against uh, racism and really being anti-racist. It's not the first time that has happened to me. Um, and it makes me think, wow, am, am I just born in the wrong time? Is this wrong? Um, am I, am I just out here by myself? But every week when I look at the Triloquy numbers, when I read the positive emails, I know that there is something there. So through all of the stresses of being without a job for over three months now, can you, can, can you imagine being unemployed for over three months during COVID? Cause I can. If I was 15. Sure. Sure. Not as an adult. No. It's, 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 it's a very real thing, but I'm just so grateful to the listeners and I'm so grateful um, to the institutions that have given me support um, and given me work. Um, I just want to, wanted to, you know, mention that as an affirmation to you listening. I know that we're all going through some rough things. I was fired from my job. Maybe you were fired or laid off from your job. Can't pay your rent. Argument with your family. Broke up with your significant other. You know, ch child is sick. You know, someone impacted by COVID. Fill in the blank. We, we all have things going on. It's been a really rough time, but through it all, I think that there is room to as, as I've said before, you know, in recent months, really tap into that gratitude and to really figure out how to take these challenges that have been put before us and turn them into something good, turning poison into medicine, you know, as, as Buddhism teaches. Shout out to mm. Caesar um, Chavetta. So I wanted to name that first and foremost as my true and real. There are times when I'm still mad at i was almost gonna say scott there are times i'm still mad at y'all i know how you feel about the word y'all i'm not talking about you there's when i say y'all there's a contraction of you all so <laughs> there's still times when i'm mad at not well I'm, there aren't times when i'm mad there are times that i'm frustrated with what i see as the infrastructure of classical radio and what we could be how we really could be tastemakers how we could be the people the institutions that are making the orchestras turn the corner and that are making the conservatories rather than the, the other, other way around turn. you know yeah. that part of it fr frustrates me i'm not mad at the individuals because i understand some people have to hold up certain institutions because they can't stand out here on their own two feet okay no shade i get that i also get that we have to change the world um i really hope there are more people that are going to step up as Kwanis does um and so many other people and and really help us do it you know so whatever you're going through in your life right now, make that make that challenge something that you can learn from, something that you can use as the impetus for change that is even greater than yourself. Mm. My greatest challenge this year has been uh, working at American public media while you do not. And being on this podcast, you said once that it was like we were on different teams and that has rattled around in my head a lot. And I have done a lot of thinking about what it 
means for a 50-year-old white man to be having these conversations. I don't know if I'm always that well-equipped, right? But I don't know what else to do. I, I, I don't know what other contribution I can make other than to continue to try to do the best job I can on this podcast while at the same time being the best host that I can be at work for however long I end up doing that. So it's interesting that you should talk about wondering where your place is or where you're supposed to be because yeah, I'm, I'm wondering that too. And if you move away, psh, I'm going to be a shut in. <laughs> I don't know if that's the answer that you were after. I don't know if I'm getting anywhere close to any of it, but that's, that was my biggest challenge this year. What are you doing with it? What 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 are you planning um, to do to traverse those challenges and uh, deal with the things that you can I don't deal know with? I I don't know how to do it. That's part of the problem. Mm. This is the first time that I'm facing some of the things like you know like an onslaught of emails or DMs or whatever based on something that I said, and man. That, that tells me that I still got a ways to go to learn, that I still need to be doing my work to make sure that I'm not making those mistakes. So that even further makes me think, okay, then you should be doing the podcast because there's probably other white folks out here listening to you who have even less of an idea of how to handle these situations than you do. I think that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to leave everyone with. When we talk about New Year. There's a lot of energy and idea uh, discourse around ref refresh or well, what words of uh, re restart mm -hmm. and, and all that a sort reset. of thing. Re reset, yeah. When you're talking about really going into the new year, still thinking about how you can be engaged and what all of these challenges mean, I think that's really how more of us need to think about this new year in particular. We all set up about this time last year till midnight and said, happy new year, and look what happened. Right? <laughs> so when we go into 2021, I, what, what I would like to go in with, Scott, what I, what I hear you're going in with, and what I think we all need to go in with is the spirit of the work not going away. Coronavirus, the, the panorama, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, uh, is not going away. That's, that's still very much here. When we talk about issues of racial equity on a large scale and in the arts, all of that is not going away. And neither are those of us who are painstakingly doing the work to change it all. The challenges that you go through, the emails that you have to go through, sift through, Scott, the, the hate mail that I sift through, the love mail that I sift through, it's mm -hmm. all part of what is the bigger picture. As I've been saying to all these college classes, the presentation I give called The Bigger Picture, it's about creating a world that really works for all of us, where we can just find some sort of happiness mm -hmm. and some sort of meaning that doesn't uh, require the existence of racist and, and, and problematic structures. Um, so to, to continuing the work in, in, um, in 2021, the, the new year's party is at your house this year, right? That's right. All right. Well, if you, uh, have the champagne, I'll bring the weed and we'll have a great time. <laughs> See you there.